Historically, clinicians and scientists have proposed a variety of theories to explain why kids with autism tend to be less socially communicative than their typically developing peers. Now, there are two theories, one called the social motivation hypothesis, and the other is the sensory over-responsivity hypothesis. These are two different reasons why social interaction is difficult for people with autism. So which one is right, or do we actually have to pick one? Can they both be right? Former ASF fellow Catherine Stavropoulos, who is now at UC Riverside, and her colleague, BSRC researcher Leslie Carver from UC San Diego, studied these questions by letting kids play a game and at the same time recorded their brain activity using these totally non-invasive caps that record electrical activity from different parts of the brain. They put them on their heads. They don't hurt. They may feel a little bit weird with the gel, but that's about it. These kids between the ages of 7 to 20 years old played a game where if they picked the right answer, they saw either an up arrow or a smiling face. If they picked the wrong answer, they saw a down arrow or a sad face. The reward that was the face was a social reward. The arrow was a non-social reward. Oh, and also if they got the right answer, they got a cracker or a fruit snack. So by putting caps on their heads, the researchers could look at brain activity either before they saw that they got the right or the wrong answers, which would address the motivation part, the anticipation part of the whole thing. And they also were able to look at their brain activities after they picked their answers, either whether they were told if it was right or it was wrong. So this looks at the sensory component. They looked at different types of brain waves, which mean different types of things to behavior. There were people with and without autism who participated to look at the differences. And I apologize, I'm probably distilling years worth of a complicated design down to a few sentences. So my apologies. But as always, I'm going to put the link to the article in the podcast summary. So whoever wants to read these details can do so. They found that people with autism showed differential responses when the reward was social or the face versus non-social or the arrow. But better than have me explain it, we have the first author, Dr. Stavropoulos, giving us her take on the results and what they mean for families affected with autism. Personally, I love it when researchers join the podcast so you can hear it straight from them and not have my interpretation clouding everything. Dr. Stavropoulos? Many theories have been put forward about how and why social communicative deficits in autism spectrum disorder occur. The two that I talk about in this paper are the social motivation hypothesis and sensory over-responsivity, sometimes called the overly intense world hypothesis. The social motivation hypothesis says that children with autism engage in less social interactions compared to their typically developing peers because social interactions are not rewarding. So what that means is that children with autism maybe do not experience social interactions as rewarding and are therefore less likely to engage in them. On the other hand, the sensory over-responsivity hypotheses have to do with things being overly overwhelming in terms of sensory experiences for kids on the autism spectrum. So what I mean by that is these theories say that children with autism tend to avoid social interactions because they find them overwhelming to the senses. So that would be maybe voices or experiences too loud, colors are too bright, or voices are too high-pitched. So as someone who's both a clinician and a neuroscientist, I wanted to explore whether these two theories might exist in tandem. So are these two things maybe happening at once? We used electrophysiology, a neuroscience technique, to answer this question, and we measured brain activity thought to measure reward anticipation, reward processing, and activity we think relates to sensory overload or feelings of being overwhelmed. So here's what we found. 
During reward anticipation, we found that children with autism anticipate social information less than their typically developing peers. Furthermore, we observed that children with more severe symptoms of autism showed increased reward anticipation for non-social information. So what that means to us is this sort of confirms and extends the social motivation hypothesis. It could be that children with autism are less rewarded by social interactions, but are overly rewarded by non-social information, objects, for example. For interventions, this would mean that intervention should work on increasing the reward value of people, which may, in turn, decrease the reward value of non-social information like trains, planes, and cars. Reward processing results also showed really interesting things that relate to intervention. So the reward processing results showed that children with autism have less reward-related brain activity compared to their typically developing peers after they see feedback, but have more global attention-related brain activity. We think this might mean that feedback is overwhelming for children with autism. So maybe this means that children with autism do not experience feedback as rewarding, they experience it as overwhelming to their senses. Altogether, our study suggests that children with autism might be experiencing both sensory overload or too much sensory stimulation and lack of social motivation at the same time, rather than these two theories being thought of in isolation from one another. This is important for intervention and suggests that professionals should work together rather than in isolation from one another, especially when we think about people who help children with autism with sensory sensitivity and those who help children with autism who have difficulties with social interactions. So that is, rather than thinking about social skills on Monday and occupational therapy on Tuesday, maybe it would be best to integrate these approaches and have some combined therapy sessions. We need to both increase the reward value of social interactions and be sensitive to children's sensory experiences. It does no good if we have excellent social skills intervention, but a child cannot benefit from it because he or she finds the lights too bright, voices to be too high or low-pitched, or a truck outside to be too loud. I'm very excited to say that I'm able to undertake some follow-up studies related to these findings. In particular, thanks to a philanthropic grant, I'll be using these brain measures before and after an evidence-based social skills intervention, so that way I can measure how the brain changes in response to a behavioral intervention. I hope this will allow us to learn about how and why interventions are successful for some children and not others, so that we can start taking individualized approaches. So the short answer, it's both social motivation and sensory over-responsivity. This clearly has implications for interventions of symptoms, not just behavioral, but pharmacological. The brain chemical dopamine is largely responsible for the reward system in the brain. I'm not saying we should directly turn on or off the dopamine system because antipsychotic drugs do block the effects of dopamine but have side effects. However, it might be a good place to start. In other very recent but very exciting news, there's been a lot of talk over the years about signs and symptoms of autism in parents and siblings. These signs aren't to the level of an autism diagnosis, and there's been some discussion about whether or not they should be called anything if they're just autism traits, and if so, what should they be called? Researchers call it the broad autism phenotype, or the BAP, and yes, these features are more likely to be seen in siblings of those with a diagnosis, and yes, parents. Some studies have shown that they're more often seen in the father. Others say that they're evenly distributed between mothers and father. But there they are. They're around. 
In fact, a large percentage of siblings who have an autism diagnosis also show features of the broader autism phenotype. In a new study using the Study to Explore Early Development, or SEED, Eric Rubenstein at University of North Carolina, who happens to also be a very early career investigator, explored the broader autism phenotype in parents to see if they're linked to any particular autism subtype in kids. So remember last year when I reported that the SEED study harnessed their large data set to categorize different subgroups of autism using a data-driven approach? They came up with these four groups based solely on the different symptoms that the data showed them, not on any sort of preconceived notion about what the subgroups should be when they started the analysis. As a reminder, the groups were, one, mild language delay with cognitive rigidity. Children in this group had the least impairment in terms of cognitive functioning and the youngest age of language development. They were also less likely to have developmental regression than other children, and they had high rates of restricted interests and unusual sensory responses. The next group of the four was significant developmental delay with repetitive motor behaviors. Children in this group had the most impairment in cognitive functioning. They acquired language at later ages, if at all, and were the latest to walk unsupported. This group had a high rate of seizures, unusual sensory responses, and more repetitive motor mannerisms. The next group was general developmental delay. Children in this group had significant impairments in cognitive functioning and were similar to the first group, except they had more developmental regression and they also had significant delayed language development. They also had high levels of unusual sensory response. Then the fourth group was mild language and motor delay with dysregulation. Children in this group had average nonverbal functioning and mild language and motor delays. This, cl- this group of kids had high rates of cognitive rigidity and relatively higher rates of aggressive behaviors, anxiety and depression, attention problems, emotional reactivity, self-injurious behaviors, sleep problems, and somatic complaints. This group also had unusually high levels of sensory response. Are you seeing a pattern here? Unusual sensory response seems to be pervasive throughout all four groups. So they looked at this data and took a step further and said, based on these different groups, is one group more likely to have a parent with the broader autism phenotype? And is it more likely to be the mother or the father? So it wasn't that this question had not been asked before because it had, but most studies have looked at it in terms of the probability of having the broader autism phenotype with increased symptoms of autism or autism yes or no. On the other hand, this study looked at different subgroups of autism rather than just symptom severity. I think this is an interesting approach and clearly where researchers need to head in terms of grouping different symptoms together. But the question still needs to be answered whether or not these different groups derived from this seed analysis hold up in other samples. Can you derive these four groups in other larger scale epidemiological studies? I actually don't know, but that doesn't make them wrong. There was only one group that showed a higher amount of broader autism phenotype compared to the others, and it was the mild language and motor delay with dysregulation class. So these kids were marked by average nonverbal abilities, mild language and motor delays, average nonverbal abilities, and an increased propensity for co-occurring conditions like anxiety, depression, aggression, and attention problems. So actually in this study, mothers were less likely to show symptoms of the broader autism phenotype than fathers. There was no sex difference in either subgroup or presence of broader autism phenotype. 
The bottom line is that this study, number one, verifies that parents of children with autism are more likely to show symptoms of autism themselves, and it's even higher in a particular subtype or different symptoms in the child. And also, this can help better understand both genetic and environmental factors involved in the causes of autism. It also may help explain symptoms of autism in both parents and children. I finally want to emphasize that the broader autism phenotype is not a psychiatric term. It's not meant to convey anything other than features similar to autism. I'm not trying to pathologize it or make it negative. This comes from scientific data. It is what it is. So thank you so much for listening this week. And next week, we're going to talk more about animal models and how they're really becoming more robust in helping scientists better understand not only symptoms, but potential targets. Thanks so much.